Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. Speculative fiction has always been a genre that challenges traditional views and established ways of seeing. We regularly discuss how the worlds that genre authors create are arenas in which it's possible to tackle social narratives away from conventional models. But no genre can really be said to straddle fantasy and reality like magical realism. Tonight we're joined by Natasha Bully, whose books do just that, lead us onto paths we think we know until we find ourselves lost in the woods. And I do mean that in the very best way possible because woods are super cool. Uh, So Natasha, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh yes, hello, I'm Natasha Pulley. I write historical fantasy, magical realism, all that. And in several of the books, characters do indeed literally get lost in the woods in the best possible way. I do like some magical woods. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 magical woods. <laughs> um, so should we really, I think it's a really good place to start. Um, I'm sure lots of listeners or our listeners know about magical realism, or have heard the term magical realism before, um, but is magical realism a little bit more than just blurring the boundaries between fiction and fact, fantasy and reality? I mean, what is it to you? So for me, magical realism tends to have a very political element. When we talk about magic realist writers, often we're talking about people like Angela Carter, like Salman Rushdie, like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And these are narratives that tends to that tend to frame some kind of socio-political issue and put it in a framework that is outside the usual. And putting it in that framework that's new tends to enable you to see it in a rather different way than you would if it were just in front of you on the street. So I think that political element is really what differentiates magical realism for me. And it's actually what makes me a little bit uncomfortable about calling my own fiction magic realist because I'm not really talking about socio-political issues at all it's mainly fantasy for the sake of fantasy because it's wonderful and gorgeous and cool (laughs) (laughs) I mean I I really like magical realism as you were saying you know it's kind of an act of rebellion um, against the status quo and and that's something that really appeals to me about the the kind of origins of the genre yeah me too um I think it's it is absolutely fascinating. Um, although I, th- I think for me, when I was at university, ma- magical realism was was quite a highfalutin genre. Do you know what I mean? Like, and nobody would say that, nobody would call Tolkien magic realist, or never mind modern fantasy historical writers, like never mind Robin Hobb, never mind Leanne Hearn, even though, of course, that's exactly what they're doing and the worlds that they're writing are not only fictional, but deeply recognisable and obviously based on existing cultures. So we'll probably touch on um, kind of cultures and um, the the political elements in magical realism a little bit later on. Um, But I really liked this quote that I got 
um, from an article on Vox, which said, um, unlike in fantasy novels, authors in magical realism genre deliberately withhold information about the magic in their created world in order to present magical events as ordinary occurrences and to present the incredible as normal everyday life. Um, I wondered what you thought of that, because I thought that was really, it's really interesting way of looking at magic. And and it, I thought it was a distinctly different way of looking at, um, I mean, ha- the way that magic uh, is presented in fantasy novels is, seems to be very different um, to the way that you present it in your books and, and generally it, how it kind of crops up in magical realism. It has less of a a real element like there are very few wizards shooting lightning bolts around in magical realism it, it there's a lot more subtlety there uh, but i i really liked this kind of distinction between um presenting magic as this like part of normal everyday life and yet fantasy doesn't do that and it knows it doesn't do that and we as readers go into fantasy not expecting it you know to do that fantasy in magic kind of go hand in hand um so what did you think about the kind of idea of like almost hiding magic in a magical realism novel i actually completely agree with that quote um and i agree with you as well i think if you're reading a a high fantasy novel or even if you're writing a high fantasy novel one of the things that's really fun to see happen or one of the things that's really fun to design is to show a system of magic and kind of do jazz hands around it and you go look magic look wizards things to do with magic whereas if you're writing something that is magic but more muted so magic realism or you know this idea of estranged fantasy you have to present it as normal but what you're focusing on isn't really the magic it's the effects that the magic has and I feel like it's the difference between writing about the wind and writing about the effect that the wind has on trees for example so magic realism will often kind of go right into the intricacies of the evolution of particular kinds of trees with particular kinds of climates whereas fantasy is often concerned with that you know that great force that's kind of blowing down from the north and investigating what that is so i think we're we're all looking at the same thing but it's it's framing different aspects of it well, I was thinking about the film Pan's Labyrinth, which I absolutely love and is top of the list of whenever you search magical realism films and books and things. And the thing I always wondered about that is that talking about magical realism versus fantasy, like you say, sort of you're going, wow, look, there's magic here, wizard stuff, cool, dragons. Whereas in Pan's Labyrinth, it's almost a bit like an inception. At the end, you're left with the idea of was this magic or was this in our heads? And I've watched it several times and I watched it with my husband and we go back there and I'm like, oh yeah, but there was this bit that was definitely magic. And I think there's an element of that in magical realism. In some some books do tend to go for the idea that it, it could be magic, it might not be magic. It's, you know, I think there is that interpretation left in magical realism that you perhaps don't get in fantasy. I think um, one of the real hallmarks of magical realism is that it doesn't really consider it important um, whether the magic is physically real or in someone's head. Just because it's in someone's head doesn't make it not real in magic realism. Um, So I think there is much more room to sort of blur perception versus what everybody else perceives to be reality. I think that's what Pan's Labyrinth does really, really well. Um, 
And I think this is probably why magical realism can play with history as well. It gets very playful, doesn't it, with what actually happened, what might have happened, what magic can we fit in the interesting bits. I love you because that's exactly what I was going to ask next. (laughs) What a good segue into the next question. I, it was so perfect. It was it was perfectly timed. So yeah, what about history? Because I think this genre has a unique ability to navigate history in a totally different way to novels that approach a historical period, like in an attempt to reproduce that period as exactly as possible. I think that's a problem with um, with our kind of perception of history, and and you know they there's often kind of people say history is written by the victors and obviously history can become quite political depending on what who writes it and what accounts are kind of left over so i feel like um because it's it it's this at its heart quite untrustworthy it's something that's untrustworthy that pretends to be trustworthy and that we talk about you know the importance of remembering the past a lot i feel like magical realism is a genre that could really go to town on challenging everything we know about our accepted history. It absolutely does. And I think what we see with the difference between historical fiction and magical realism or historical fantasy, whatever you want to call it, is two very different styles of reconstruction. Because history is a thing that we have to reconstruct, isn't it? Like, you know, we can remember last week, but 200 years ago, nobody can remember that. So it has to be this process of kind of piecing it together from the evidence that remains. And there's always holds in the record isn't there like we can never quite know exactly what Queen Victoria said to Prince Albert of a particular Tuesday morning in April one year in 18 whatever Um, so if you're going to write about them that's where the fiction element comes in isn't it you have to say well what do I write if I'm doing this conversation on a particular Tuesday morning in the spring of 18 whatever and I think the historical fiction approach is to say okay, what I have to put here is what is likely, what are they likely to have been talking about? But I think what magical realism really recognises is that real life very, very rarely does the likely thing. People are zany and weird and they have insane conversations and insane things happen all the time, as we're experiencing right now in our lives in lockdown. Um, like this never really felt to a lot of people like the likely thing, but nonetheless it is going on. So I think um, historical fiction tends to reconstruct in a very conservative way. It kind of, it takes a survey of what already exists on the historical record and it tries to match its fictional bricks and colours and architecture to what already exists. But I think magical realism does something very different. It looks at the ruins of what happened, of what's on the record, and it says, yeah, I know that the likely thing is this, you know, that Hilary Mantel writes in Wolf Hall of Thomas Cromwell. Yes, this is probably what he spoke about to the Cardinal. However, there are other ways of doing this. Why do we have to replace Roman bricks with Roman bricks? Why don't we replace it with glass or these soaring structures that do something quite different to what we know full well the original architecture did but wouldn't it be interesting if we put this here instead the effect is very different um and i think whenever i whenever i think about this it always makes me think about um the way that we maintain churches like if we maintain churches completely perfectly according to the original structures We would replace oak pillars for oak pillars, glass, um, wooden doors for wooden doors. 
But I've seen plenty of churches with glass doors. And there's one in Oxford that's kind of 10th century with glass doors, which I think is great because, yeah, if they were being completely accurate to, you know, Norman Conquest England, they would have replaced those doors with wood. But somebody looked at those doors and said, do you know what? It's actually more in keeping with this faith to do glass. And maybe if the technology had been available at the time, they would have used glass themselves. So it's doing something different to the original, but it's still keeping faith. I think it's really interesting when you're talking about um, how magic realism, it's, you know, could, could be real, could not be real. It could just be in the imagination and what you're talking about here, because when you think about history, you know, the, the police talk about how witness or eyewitness testimony is really, really fallible. People don't remember things that just happened. They can't, you know, identify the person. It could be any one of those people. It, it, you know, and a positive identification is really not the best kind of evidence. Um, and it, it got me thinking about how really all our memories from as soon as something happens, we remember it in very different ways from how it actually happened. We're constantly kind of rewriting our own history in our minds, not deliberately, but it's just how our, our brains process that information. And I was also thinking of The Singing Detective, if anyone has um, seen the original or the the remake film with Robert Downey Jr. But it's like where uh, it, this guy uh, sees the world where everyone's singing, basically. Um, but for me, kind of like magic realism. Like the Buffy realism, episode. Yeah, like the Buffy <laughs> episode. There's also uh, an episode of Scrubs where they do, like, they actually, they have a... Yeah, they have oh, a patient scrubs, who yeah. hears everything is singing. But it's that kind of thing where it could be real to that person. And many of us almost could have magic in our lives if that's how we see our life or or we retell our life to ourselves, if, if that makes any sense. I'm probably being a bit odd. But um, I do like that kind of idea of it's it's just a different lens or a different way of seeing the, the history but it might still be the same history yeah I think that's really interesting and the flip side of that coin is the way that we remember weird stuff that's happened to us because I think our brains are hardwired to to be very logical aren't they like we're we're basically kind of creatures of reason or I really perhaps naively want to believe that um and so I think if you're a very, very logical person, but you see something peculiar, you very quickly convince yourself that either A, you didn't see it, B, you were mistaken, or C, there must have been something about it that you didn't quite notice that makes it entirely ordinary. It's amazing how quickly you can talk yourself out of perceiving something extraordinary. And I think if something incredible or magic seeming were actually to be in front of me, I would probably walk past it and assume that I'd seen it wrongly or, or not perceived it properly. And so when I read books like Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere, I'm like, no, do you know what? I find it fully plausible that there is a version of London beneath this one that I've just failed to notice. It's really interesting you should mention Neverwhere because I really love that book. And I tend to find that more than, say, fantasy, it does bring out the magic of the world yourself. So if I'm standing in London at a tube station, I can really imagine that the next train that comes along is going to hold Earl's Court like it does in Gaiman's novel. But it's really, really hard to conjure up the the place where Granny Weatherwax lives, for example. You haven't quite got that anchor in 
real life that really brings it alive. And I think magical realism books for me tend to stick in my mind a lot more and they tend to come up at strange times. She's like, oh, oh, that reminds me of that thing I read, you know, whether it's a book or, or whatever that you've just see, read in the um, story you've been reading. And it's so much more affecting just in everyday life and sudden little surprises that bring the book back to you. Definitely. And I think magical realism is very good at leaning on the stuff that is familiar to you like London it's underground like like I I started writing about London because I love Neverwhere so much um and in my first book the characters live in Knightsbridge because that was the only part of London that I could name um because I'd read it in Neil Gaiman's book (laughs) um and I think that that kind of kick of the familiar is really important. And, you know, as you say, it's quite difficult to visualise the ram tops and Granny Weatherwax's cottage and much less Ankhamore Fork, which is uh, insane and brilliant and completely original, but unfamiliar. So I think pulling it closer to the real world is often a way to to show us magic as it, you might almost perceive it. You can almost get your fingernails over it in a way that perhaps you can't with dragons. So a little while ago, we were talking about, you know, you were saying that you were walking down the street and if something quite supernatural happened, you probably possibly wouldn't notice it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but this this is kind of leading me on to another topic, which I think is really interesting um, with regarding magical realism, that this this split between something unusual and something that's not unusual. And I kind of feel like this, we talk about fantasy and reality as kind of diametric opposites, like, you know, that even infringe on a person's sanity. So if people are seeing things, they, you know, can be labelled as totally crazy. And, you know, like people would, if I went down the street and started saying that there were dragons flying above, someone would probably arrest me. So, I mean, maybe there are dragons, but the point is that, like, we are, we seem to be living in a society that is, has set some fairly strict boundaries between what is considered real and what is considered unreal and that those boundaries if you're seen to cross them um it doesn't you know we we look negatively upon these people um and and these ideas unless of course it's confined to the safe space of a television program or a fantasy novel in which case that's fine um but is this a particularly western view i'm feeling like there are cultures that you know that in this world that are not um, so constricted in terms of trying to classify everything as real and not real as fantasy and reality. Yeah, we are we are extraordinarily strict um, in the West with what we consider to be real versus what we consider to be imaginary, um, and it's I think it's partly because uh, largely we are post Christian nations, so we're, we're we tend to be very. Often a lot of people will identify as Christian, but it's not like they actually go to church or anything and they don't really believe in very much. And it's so there is there is this this cult of the scientific as well and of of the logical. Um, If you go to Peru, people have a very different idea about even like very, very basic things like um, there is. So the native one of the native languages of Peru is called Quechua and in Quechua. The word for mountain is apu, but it doesn't really mean mountain because an 
Apu is alive and it can think and it has opinions and you need to talk to it about things or it will get angry. And in one way, that makes absolute scientific sense because Peru is a country of earthquakes and the ground shakes and it is absolutely not a stretch of the imagination to feel that it might be alive. Um, but in another way, this is this goes far beyond just a vague sense that, you know, the earthquake means that the that the earth is alive. Like there is there are endless beliefs about when and where you should be able to cut stone because who knows who you're cutting into. And there are endless myths about people who turn to stone and tone stone that turns to a person. Um so in a lot of um isolated Quechua communities, there is still this kind of very deep-rooted sense that stone is objectively a living thing. And of course, any any Western scientist, a lot of Western people would really clash with that. But it is very much the local reality. And they don't go around saying, this is our religious belief. They say, this is so, this is true. In the same way that we say, uh, post boxes exist. It's equal certainty. And it becomes very weird, even if you're only having tea with those people for, you know, 20 minutes, to sit there and insist that it isn't the, isn't the case, because that's like someone coming here and insisting that there's no such thing as the postman. Yeah, I, I remember once um, we had some uh, vendors from India come over and were, were sort of meeting with me for my day job. And they were put up in a local pub um, just outside of Oxford. And it was a very, very old pub, like, you know, 1600s kind of time. And uh, when the next day they came in and one of them looked really exhausted. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, did you not sleep very well? And he just looked at me completely seriously and said, look, I really didn't get any sleep because there was a very angry ghost who was bothering me all night. And it wasn't, you know, and, uh, you know, I had to do that thing of kind of not chuckle, but because he was totally serious and it was to him, it, it wasn't even a question that goes surreal. And that is 100 percent part of what reality is. Um, and I, I think what that really highlights is that reality is really something that we all agree on. Um, and as soon as we meet someone who has a who incorporates something a little bit different into it, we tend to have this like Whoa, reaction, or, or we want to laugh, or because it seems absurd in some way. But I mean, obviously, to to your friend um, who stayed in the pub with the angry ghost, or or to the villagers in Peru, it would be equally absurd for us to say that this wasn't the case. I mean, you've obviously written quite a lot about Japan in your novels, um, particularly Watchmaker and um, Pepper Haru, the newest one. I mean, um, do you, is this another, and I know you've lived there as well, um, which is pretty cool and amazing and I'd love to have done that. Um, but do you feel like this, Jap the Japanese is also a culture that approaches the idea of um, what is real and what is not real very differently than, than the West? Yes and no. I mean, Japan is so like England in so many ways. Like we are both tiny island nations that are full of racists and passionate feelings about tea and sport. Like we are identical <laughs> in all the ways that matter. <laughs> um, which is like it's we're so similar. One of the things that is really noticeable in Japan, though, is that organized religion never really kind of barged into people's lives in the way that um 
monotheism does in uh, Western and, and Middle Eastern countries. In in South Asia, sixty percent. Well, in Japan, sixty percent of the population identifies itself as Buddhist, but sixty percent of the population also identifies itself as Shinto. This clearly doesn't add up. But what it actually means is that people aren't they don't view orthodoxy in the same way. And you can be Buddhist and Shinto at the same time, because actually these are not conflicting ideas. Like you don't have to believe one thing. You can believe many things. Um, and I think that's that's very inherent in quite a deep way in, in Japanese culture. I mean, then All my Japanese friends are entirely straightforward people, and I think we all agree about reality and what reality is. Um, but I think that's largely because Japan is a yeah, a very, very modernised nation. They're ahead of us. Um, but it is it is really fascinating to look at Japanese folklore, Japanese religion and say, oh, OK, so what what are we saying is normal and what are we saying isn't normal? One of, one of the things that um, I hear all the time, people just saying um, complete, completely flat is, oh, uh, it's karma. It's, it's good and bad karma. But what's really interesting is that on the one hand, you want to have this huge in-depth conversation about what's real and what's not. But you also have to be really careful about how you translate particular things, because when a lot of people say karma in Japan, what they mean is luck in in the same way that we mean luck. And obviously, we, we know that there is there's really no. Well, a lot of us agree that there is no such thing. Um, you know, we can talk about stochastic processes and ratios and likelihoods, but that is what a lot of people mean by karma. And it, so it's just, um, you can have these debates, but it's also about translating properly. And I think likewise, if if a Japanese person talks to me about a ghost, you have to be really careful and think about, well, what do they actually mean by ghost? Do they mean like a thing in a sheet, like the undead? Or do they mean a sense of spiritual unrest? Because it could be anything, anything on the spectrum between those two things. So I think there is there is a lot to talk about um, with regard to with regard to kind of conflicting Western and Eastern ideas of reality, but all of it is even more complicated by considerations of language. I've read somewhere that uh, there's some sort of critical arguments against magical realism in that it it did come from sort of Latin America was where the genre was born. And some people feel that um, writers who aren't from there are culturally appropriating this kind of genre. I mean, how do you feel about that? Because I, to me, magical realism is, it's more about, a way of seeing the world where we're not necessarily explaining things or explaining things in a way that might not be the conventional way that we think reality happens. So one of the things that I would say is that the the novels and the short stories that come from Latin America are among the first to have been classified as magical realism. But these kind of stories have existed all over the world, time out of mind. I mean, look at Beowulf. If that were written today, it would solidly be called magical realist because it takes place in a real country with 
you know, pe- people who really existed. It, it starts, you know, what we Gardinger in Yeardium, Gardinger, Speardanes were real people. It takes place in Scandinavia, a real place, but there are huge, whacking, great magical elements in it, like Grendel, Grendel's mum, the dragon. Um, and it's just, I think it's very short-sighted to ring fence a phenomenon that happens in a particular time and give it a different name to that same phenomenon that happens across history and then say that any particular place or person has ownership over it. Um, And I think it also gets in the way of the way that writing and the way that fiction works, which is an exchange of ideas. Novels are always responses to each other. And if you start calling responses that are passionate and heartfelt and they are kind of philosophical letters to the novels that have gone before if you start calling that cultural appropriation then you end up in quite a sticky place wherein everybody ends up writing their own biography which is of course deeply boring sitting here going I want to add something to what um, Natasha's saying but I'm struggling to disagree with anything or or to find a bit that she's missed <laughs> I mean, I, I, I say fantasy is the oldest genre out there. I mean, like, when people talk about fantasy being, you know, like a commercial genre as something that's been birthed by the Lord of the Rings. Have you read the like, Bible? Oh, my God. It's like the most ridiculous piece of fantasy ever. I mean, there are, like, monsters and gods and demons and magic and everything well, in I mean, it. Like- forget the bible it goes back a lot further than that i mean read the iliad read the odyssey these are insane things what about the tale of genji does that have any magic in it yeah it's full of ghosts <laughs> genji is a little bit younger than the bible um lady murasaki was writing i think in the eighth century she was writing it this is so embarrassing for us as a culture she was writing her enormous novel at the same time we more or less got around to beowulf um, so, so the history of it is um, is really alarming. But I mean, the, I think the Epic of Gilgamesh is still the oldest piece of written fiction that we have, and and this is about a man who is created by the gods to mitigate the pride and obnoxiousness of an annoying king. I mean, it's kind of great. <laughs> um, but I I think the other the other difficulty is we have to distinguish between fantasy and fantastical fiction. And obviously the distinguishing factor of fantasy is that both the writer and the audience agree that this is imaginary. Um, Whereas the further back you go, particularly if we're talking about holy texts like the Bible, there is no agreement between writer and reader that this is imaginary. That gets very blurry and difficult to define. And I think it's the reason why we can't go back and outright call Gilgamesh and Beowulf and Genji fantasy because we don't we just don't know do we what people at the time believed did did people in um, ancient mesopotamia really did they really not believe that this was possible did people in anglo-saxon england absolutely know for sure that there were no dragons and were they reading this entirely as fantasy or as something that could truly happen i i think that's probably where the um the lord of the rings pedants fall in they're like no there's no such thing as fantasy before 1951 it's deeply annoying um i like to point those people to oscar wilde who was definitely writing fantasy well before that <laughs> and jules verne and jules verne and many many well actually i think the the oldest example of absolutely 100% fantasy actually sci-fi is um Oh, what's his name? Lucian. 
No, am I am I getting that wrong? Anyway, the true history, Lucian's true history, Lucian of Samosata. That's who I mean. True history is about. It's basically like Jason and the Argonauts, but instead of you know going to Colchis, this group of sailors end up being taken to the moon on a water spout, and they meet people who live on the moon, and it's kind of great. <laughs> when was this written? The uh, second century AD. Oh my <laughs> god. And but they, but it, it's a great read. It's really short. Um, people should look it up. It's fantastic. But the reason that we can hundred percent call this science fiction and fantasy rather than you know fantastical fiction, you know, what's the the agreement between the writer and the reader, is that in the foreword, good old Lucian says, "This is all made up. If Homer can do it, I can make shit up if I want to." Here we go, men on the moon. Enjoy. <laughs> That is, and I just think it's a really interesting distinction. I also think that's very funny what he said about Homer, because it's like, oh, well, are you saying that that was all fantasy? And do we have to take this guy's word for it? Because he lived so much longer ago than we do. Exactly. And that's exactly what Lucian says in his foreword. He's just like, why is it that poets like Homer can get away with this crap? I'm going to do it as well. I never thought we'd see the day when we're recommending a book that was published in 2 BC, <laughs> something that our listeners should go and yeah. read. It's pretty, it's very short as well. And it's, um, you can, you can find the English translation on um, sacredtexts.org. It's, you can read it over a glass of wine. It's just hilarious. It's a good recommendation. Yeah. One of my more geeky ones, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> we're okay with that here. Okay. Awesome. 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 But what I wanted to talk about was mythology because, you know, we're mentoring things like the Iliad and, you know, they come from Greek mythology. And mythology was all about explaining the world around them, which is kind of what most religions started from as well. So people don't understand what's happening. So how did the sky appear or how did the world become the world? How did human beings appear? And there are stories to explain that to us through mythology. And I feel like magical realism is kind of like our modern mythology. Like we're creating our own kind of explanations of why things are. Um, but, you know, why why isn't mythology just magical realism? And what, what do you think differentiates the two? I think the massive thing that differentiates the two is that now um, the, there is a world of science and study and this is a bedrock for what we believe to be real versus not real. And we tend, we tend, don't we, to trust people like Stephen Hawking when they tell us things about the universe. We go, yes, Stephen, you're very clever and we're not very clever. So we're just going to trust what you say. Whereas I think um, the further in history you go back, the less solid that bedrock is is so i think if you're telling a group of people a story in say 3000 bc you're not going to say oh um okay so when we want to explain why there's so much gold dust in this river we'd better ask the geologists guys because they'll definitely know like there was not a group of people who would definitely know which meant that the the prerogative of explaining things belonged to everyone. It didn't belong to a group of specialists who'd studied particularly. Science and philosophy were the same thing at this point. 
And so everyone is free to say the reason why they think that there is so much gold dust in this river. And perhaps one person says, you know, one very observant person says, oh, well, there's there's a lot of gold ore further up and it, it seems to get eroded by the weather and maybe that's why, it, that's why it ends up in this river. But another person would be equally able to say, undisputed, that, oh, you know, once there was an ancient king called Midas who was cursed by the gods for being too greedy and he had to turn everything he touched into gold and eventually he drowned himself in this river river which is why there's gold here so and i think that it's the idea that those explanations and the ones that we today would recognize as valid are equally valid because there are no there are no bedrocks of science there are no groups of scientists groups of specialists to to in, to show you and to prove what is real and what isn't so it wasn't a specialist prerogative at all it was it was each to his own which is very much what magical realism does it kind of takes back that right to explain things however however we like it's interesting actually because going back to what you said uh much earlier on um there's a, a philosopher i like to read called john gray and one of his books straw dogs goes into this um idea of how it's only monotheism that has actually made us believe that science has only one answer. And before monotheistic culture, science did exist as, you know, there were disciplines and, and thinking that you could discover things and prove things. But the idea that there was only one possible truth in science, in religion, in life, whatever it is, has come from this monotheistic culture. So it's interesting, again, you know, to link back to like the cultural differences um, for, for cultures who haven't had that monotheistic background, you know, perhaps they would have had a, a very different approach to science if kind of the, the Western science approach hasn't, hadn't taken over the world. As such yeah that's that's a really fascinating thing um and i think actually the one of the things that i find really interesting about science is actually just a, a series a language of extremely sophisticated adjectives that's all a formula is that's all a chemical formula is it's a way of describing something really 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 accurately rather than saying oh you do this to custard and it goes bang you you write it down very accurately with with these numbers so this is this is a form of telling a story in exactly the same way we told stories about you know we told stories about King Midas or how the sky was made or or whatever or, or about dragons, which I suspect is actually an explanation for dinosaur bones. Let me just get that out there. Um, so I think we we so differentiate between stories and science, but we are we, we have historically always been doing the same thing. But I think recently you know since the renaissance we have perceived a very great difference between the, the way that we do those things i have to agree with natasha about the idea of dragons and dinosaur bones but to be honest i think i'd be equally impressed whether i saw a dragon or a giant dinosaur in my garden so it really doesn't matter either way also have you ever seen a heron take off they're just pterodactyls they're feathery fucking pterodactyls Absolutely. Have you seen them drown baby animals in ponds as well? I've seen that happen and it's just like, there, there's some definite dinosaur in there somewhere. Oh yeah, and the noise they make, that's prehistoric. I have not heard, but now I should be listening to every heron I see to see exactly what it sounds like. This is an unusual piece of homework, but go out and startle a heron. Go out and startle <laughs> a heron. Is that what our, our <laughs> listeners should take away from this? <laughs> 
Um, so we talk about fantasy's ability and, and science fictions to a certain extent as well um, to examine certain issues or themes uh, in a way that typical kind of general fiction can't do um, by taking them out of an ordinary kind of everyday setting. So do you feel that magical realism is able to do the same? And could it possibly do it even better? I think fantasy and magical realism are equally good at doing this, actually. Um, And I think, actually, magical realism, because of that political overtone that it carries, that that sense that this is a this is a genre that originates from kind of very repressed areas of South America where you really can't politically say what you want to say and therefore you must couch it in magic. It means that now when we read magical realism, we're often looking for the moral of the story or the code to the metaphor in a way that we're not looking for in a high fantasy novel, um, which I think can make discussing social issues in magical realism often seem a little bit shouty. So it's, it can be quite hard to dis, um, it can be quite hard to disguise things. Like it's okay if you're Angela Carter and you want to scream at the top of your lungs about how shit everything is for women, but it's a bit difficult if you want to be subtle. And I think one of the things that high fantasy, you know, totally world built from the ground up, Robin Hobb, Tolkien, you kind of fantasy, is um, that you can discuss all of these issues slightly in the periphery of the reader's view without making these things front and centre. Front and centre is magic and a fucking brilliant dragon. But off to the side, there are all these other fascinating issues about how gender works in a world where you have decided how it works, how sexuality works, how class works, how how all of these things work in a society that you've built completely. And I think that's actually a, a strength of high fantasy, the fact that it can do this in a subtle clever off to the side way rather than a kind of fireworks in your face way i find that really interesting and this is the point where i'm going to mention star trek do it <laughs> that's just be where lucy groans <laughs> <laughs> well so i mean one of the kind of original series things was um commenting on race relations um, at the time in the US, which was not allowed um, under the McCarthy era, like rules and regulations of television. So they got away with doing that by couching it in sort of science fiction. And it was good because the actual, the censors at the time missed it, didn't twig to what was happening. So while you say that things like this could be a bit shouty or whatever, sometimes people don't actually get it. And I wondered maybe if magical realism might be a bit better sometimes because it forces the readers or the viewers to actually look at the world through a different lens while still being rooted in their real world and understanding that they are actually looking at that. Whereas, you know, if someone who probably isn't as you know aware of whatever the issue is that is being addressed might miss it if it's too subtle or too removed from their everyday life when it's more magical realist it that connection is more obvious rather than necessarily being shouty I think this is always going to be a matter of reader taste, isn't it? And I think for a writer, it's about when do you want a reader to realise this? I think if if you read you know, kind of dystopian novels like The Power, 
you realize very quickly what Naomi Alderman wants you to see, don't you? She wants you to see that, you know, if the if the gender power imbalance were reversed and women were in charge, everything would still be shit. Like you see that really, really quickly. But if you read something that is less direct, as you say, there is this heavy possibility that readers might miss it. But that's still gone in. That's still in their souls now. And if you're writing about gender or race in however subtle a way, there'll be kids who are watching this and reading this and going, oh, but those people were treated with complete equality. So I don't see why I shouldn't be either. And it might be entirely subconscious, but it's going to be there. And I I actually really agree with what you were saying about Star Trek because I love it. And I, I loved the original series. And one of the things that I adore about Star Trek is that it's an unashamed utopia. Or the, or the first, I think the first four series, but basically everything except Star Trek Picard, isn't it? They're utopias. It's about how we could function if we just got our shit together and got on with it. And my my earliest exposure to any Asian character, and of course now I write about Asian characters all the time, was Mr. Sulu from the original Star Trek. Yes, love Sulu. Yeah, all the way. And of course, like looking back at it now, I can see that it's a utopia, that it's about pulling together. It's about getting people from different creeds and colours and cultures all together to do this one fantastic piece of exploration. Of course, I can see that. I wasn't analysing it in that way when I was seven and watching it. So I think I am the archetypal watcher or viewer or reader who doesn't get it at the time. But it still went in. 100%. And I think it was hugely important that Uhura was black and Mr. Sulu was Asian. And, you know, there's there's also characters like Spock who aren't human at all. And I think I thought it was very clever of them to include Spock because actually then the focus is on him and not on the other characters who in the real world would be considered very other to a lot of white American viewers. They're focusing on Spock. Isn't that damn clever that you've made people not even notice because that's how it should be? See, Lucy, Star Trek is amazing. Yes. It certainly can be applied (laughs) to almost any topic or situation. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uh. Sorry, Lucy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to say, I think that's a a quote I can live with. Star Trek can be applied to any situation, social situation, ethic situation. There's something for everybody, I feel. It's interesting because your books have kind of always been shelved with general fiction and, and magical realism seems to get some sort of free pass into a more literary kind of aura of the world of the general fiction world where, you know, it's all... You know, you go to Waterstones and it's kind of A to Z and and that's the acceptable place to browse. And then there's the bit, the dark corner at the back where all like the genre fiction is shelved and you have to kind of sidle off that way. And, you know, it's all kind of like very geeky and, and people look down on you. And that's and I feel like even though we have moved some way kind of out of that, there still seems to be this kind of really weird break between like you know, genre and so-called literary fiction. And I think magical realism as a genre sits really interestingly between these two worlds. And yet, I think the first time I met you was at FantasyCon and you said that was the first time you'd been to FantasyCon. Yeah, um, I think you're completely right about the, the strange sort of literary class position that magic realism sits in. And I think the honest to God, unfortunate truth is that magic realism is the word that critics use for fantasy that's actually good. 
harsh. <laughs> It is, but it but it is. It's re- it is really harsh. It's really irritating, isn't it? And in the same way that speculative fiction is the literary word for science fiction that's really good. Um, like you know, this is this is you know, Margaret Atwood claiming that she doesn't write science fiction. It's it, it's really hilarious. And Kazuo Ishiguro insisting when, with the very giant that he wasn't writing fantasy. Um, there is an inherent class system, isn't there? But I think increasingly it, it's breaking down. And I think you will always find in the intricacies and strangenesses and pedantries of the literary establishment, this use of different terminology for different sections of what is clearly the same genre. And they're just, of course, they're just trying to differentiate what they think is really brilliant and what they think is really rubbish. And I think it's just a kind of a side effect of the way that we that we rate and review books and, and all of this. But I think there are always there are always going to be standout things that are, you know, they're kind of out and proud. Like I would never call the Farseer trilogy or um, the Tawny Man trilogy or even or even Game of Thrones. I'd, I'd never try and call that magical realism because it, it's not. It's high fantasy and they're just damn good at what they do. And I think being open to that and not being snobby about it is really important unfortunately convincing um certain newspapers of this is quite difficult <laughs> uh, no it's it's true I'm, I'm just uh looking forward to the time when that kind of breaks down a bit more i feel like even when i was reading the vox article about magical realism it even had something in there about commercial books and literary books <laughs> as being like in a different breed from each other and I just feel like wow this word commercial is used to kind of dismiss or I think it was like sensational or entertain I think entertainment with air quotes you know oh it's the, the books that are for entertainment but I'm like hang on like aren't all books I know entertainment? I, I, what? Like, am I gonna read a book that's purely for my literary edification no I'm kind of like <laughs> that now because I'm not a student um so it's it's really really silly some of it um and it it cheapens a lot of really good fiction um but by giving it these these silly names and I think it it's also patently untrue as soon as you look at the industry I mean several editions of the mirror and the light are now pushing into the top 20 books being sold in the UK at the moment now if it sells well, it's commercial, right? But this is clearly literary fiction. Hilary Mantel is a double Booker Prize winner. So you're not telling me that that's not literary. It's literary and commercial at the same time. Like, so it's these these areas are not mutually exclusive. The Great Wall of China does not exist between them. There is this great grey space, but I think often um, particularly critics like to forget about it. I feel like I have to blame one of my favourite writers for some of this, um, Graham Greene, because he actually divided up his own work and called some of it, so the more like thriller, crime stuff, he called that his entertainment works, and then the rest of his stuff were his literary novels. Like, why would you even do that to yourself? He was putting himself down, and, you know, it it just seems like... The question I always want to ask with, with kind of literary novels, like if you're calling it literary and not, entertainment like what are you actually getting out of it because how many people honestly 
I mean, really honestly, ever pick up a book and go, I really don't care that it has no plot. I just want to read it for the poetry of the prose. In which case, why are you not reading Paradise Lost? I mean, to me, I tend to think that literary novels are just really hard to read and just not very interesting. There are some that, like, I, I read literary novels all the time and they can be really beautiful. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there are things that they're less good at. So, yes, the focus is on mm. the prose and the prose is utterly gorgeous. And if you read anything by um, Isabel Allende, then obviously the prose yes. is always going to yeah. be utterly, utterly beautiful. But if you read her most recent one, which is A Long Pest Over the Sea, like you don't care about any of the characters because the focus is the prose rather than something that genre fiction does extremely well, which is kind of character empathy and plot motion. And I think to to divide literature into two great halves, literary and commercial, is almost to say that books can exist with, you know, really good books can exist with amazing prose, but on the strength of nothing else, which I really don't think is true. I think a really good book should have beautiful prose, but it should have beautiful characters and an amazing plot as well. Yeah, agreed. Well, I wonder if it's something to do with the way that books are recommended these days. So if you think back to maybe 100 years ago when books were sort of word of mouth and in the elite circles it was ever whatever Lord Byron was reading that everybody thought was absolutely fantastic and he probably would have loved Hilary Mantel. But these days it's very much what people who are on Goodreads, who are on Amazon, who run their own websites, it's those kind of people that are driving sales. So like Natasha was saying, yes, okay, Hilary Mantel um, is very literary, but there's also a huge commercial aspect there because a load of people really love it. And so they're kind of recommending it. So it kind of divides that, that area between the literary snobs at the top are all going, oh, yes, this is wonderful. But at the same time, the people on the street going, actually, do you know, I really like this as well, which really drives it. So I think maybe it's it's not so much of a helpful distinction anymore because of the way books are reviewed and the fact that so many people are more interested in reading something very different. I mean, you've got to say that about Mantel. Her books are different. I'll give her that. I know we've kept you kind of a long time um, already, but I feel like this is a really great opportunity because we to ask you about characterization because we've been talking about the differences between a literary novel and um, maybe a more commercial genre novel and whether they can do things differently. And um, But I mean, I've read both I've read your watchmaker and I've read Pepper Harrow and I really absolutely love your characters so much and I'm going to fangirl about them (laughs) and yeah and I think that's the great thing about really well-written characters they can just live with you and they they become their lives become so important to you um but I notice that you're you know you're really good at doing particularly male relationships and it's something that I feel like we don't see enough of this kind of attention to detail given to um, how men interact with each other and very often the relationships we see are very heterosexual Um, if we see male relationships they're maybe not and I'm not just talking about romantic relationships also platonic relationships there's male friendship isn't particularly even though it features quite heavily in fantasy books the actual kind of the way it is put together is not really touched on so much. And that's maybe because fantasy, like kind of hard science fiction, is very plot driven and has a slightly less time to kind of really delve into the 
kind of deep level of kind of characterization that maybe we come to expect from more literary novels. Um, so kind of as a magical realism author, like, do you feel that there is a difference in how these two genres approach characterization? I think we're all trying to do the same thing, right? We're, we're all trying to investigate aspects of humans that we find really fascinating. And one of the reasons that I landed on male relationships, for, I mean, it is very simple. It's that I'm a woman. I have to live life as a woman. It can be quite crap. I don't want to write about that in my free time as well as live it. Um, and, but one of the reasons I got really interested in, in male friendship in a literary way is that it's very, as you say, it's underexplored and it's almost taboo to talk about how these friendships are constructed. Even today, a lot of men are very embarrassed to to even admit to to liking someone to to talk to apart from just talking about like the football or peanuts or cereal packets or whatever it is that they talk about. Um, and I think it's one of the things that I've felt was really important was to say look this is I know this is what we see all the time but it must be for said because people are still humans are humans and I wouldn't be able to live like that without being profoundly emotionally damaged so I really call bullshit on this I don't think anyone can live like that without being profoundly emotionally damaged so that let's look at how that's constructed I find that really interesting and I think to put the frame of fiction around it does make it slightly different and it means that you can zoom in on it a lot more the reason that I really like magical realism is that again it's a way to it's a way to do this but without being too flashy if I were writing a literary novel that was just about male friendship and without any element of magic or the uncanny or the strange what I would be saying about it would always be very kind of bald whereas with the distractions of a very strange plot, a completely different country, of magic, of the uncanny. The book is about the characters. It is about this central relationship between uh, a foreign office translator and, and a Japanese nobleman. But all this other stuff means that I can kind of cover it over a little bit and say, look, but even if you don't really want to talk about this even if you find it embarrassing to talk about even if it's you know even to you if it feels a little bit taboo even to read it well you've got all this other stuff to cover it up with it's not right there front and front and center stage so I think again it's about it's about disguise I think magical realism is the most wonderful glittery mask it's interesting because you know we were talking about this before and and speaking about like the fantastical elements and how um you know those are they obviously feature quite heavily in magical realism um, as well as fantasy. Um, and so you do feel that, that that element is, for you, quite necessary in giving you kind of the ability to explore these relationships, um, maybe in, like, maybe it, it highlights motifs and it highlights kind of the way people think a little bit differently when they're plunged into a situation that they haven't encountered before. And, you know, like, and that is, and not just a, you know, a, a situation that they haven't encountered before in, in, in the sense of the real, but introducing a supernatural element, like in your book, like obviously, um, Thaniel 
finds himself surrounded by ghosts and at, yeah. at the beginning yeah. we don't know what those ghosts are and he doesn't know what those ghosts are um but that's a really interesting example because it's like you know suddenly he's in a situation where like he it's clearly out of his comfort zone um and i think that's what you know magical realism is really really good at doing it's still he's still in a recognizable place like he knows he hasn't crossed into narnia and yet this is not what he's used to at all um, yeah i really agree i i think those magical realism elements are they they serve a great plot function which is to strip away the character's sense of stability and um and safety like, and obviously as writers like we have to be absolute sadists because we put our characters through the ringer don't we like we we want them to be broken and then remade by the end of a story like it's it's really boring if everyone everyone's just fine all the way through um so those those magical realism elements are a really good way to do that without this becoming an austin novel where you know somebody's raised eyebrow becomes of central importance to the story Oh, I don't know. The raised eyebrow is like, you know, if, if there's a build up to it. I so love those stories and I love Jane Austen and my, my favourite one is Persuasion. Um, and they're uplifting, but I also find them deeply claustrophobic. Yes. Like to, to be focused so utterly on the minutiae of human behaviour in a, in a tiny group, often in an isolated place. Like I would go insane. And I think... Um, it's part of the urge to write kind of magic realism elements is to say, well, where is the ruggedness? Where is the wildness in the world that you know, is is both here and not here? Like, where's the weirdness? Let's let's see this, but with weird. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Natasha. It's just been a really, really interesting conversation. And I think um, we've all learned a lot because <laughs> we pretty much agree with you on everything. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm now worried that I'm like hugely just boring you as I lecture on and on about Greek texts from the second century AD. Hey, look, we could do with more. In fact, I'm reading Circe right now. I'm totally into Greek texts. We also know who to have back if we ever want to do fantasy science fiction in the Greek texts. Oh, God, now I have to go away and read all the others, don't I? Yeah, but so do we. So don't worry, it'll be like another three years in the making. You'll be fine. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.